Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. This week we present Ben Clements, board chair of Free Speech for People, who discusses the lawsuit his group has filed on behalf of Mi Familia Vota Education Fund, accusing the Trump regime of organizing unconstitutional voter intimidation. Christopher Yugun, professor of sociology at the University of Minnesota, who talks about his new study that finds that despite state reforms, millions of people with felony convictions in their past still can't vote. And Jim Lafferty, former executive director of the Los Angeles office of the National Lawyers Guild, who explains why he believes that mass mobilization is the only sure way to defend the election. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Rising tensions over access to water in the Rio Grande Valley exploded in September when angry farmers in Mexico's northern state of Chihuahua seized La Boquilla Dam. Mexico faced a late October deadline to divert 500 million cubic meters of water to the Rio Grande River on the Texas border under a 1944 water-sharing agreement with the U.S. In exchange, Mexico is given access to Colorado River water. Water diversion from the agricultural-dependent Chihuahua state put Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador in an uncomfortable position during a U.S. election year. While Obrador didn't want to aggravate Trump, Mexico was forced to divert water to the U.S. at the expense of drought-stricken Mexican farmers and ranchers. A 35-year-old mother was killed when farmers clashed with troops from the Mexican National Guard. Obrador blames the violence on the conservative National Action Party, which exerts political control over much of northern Mexico. Obrador insisted he wanted to avoid a border closure by the Trump regime over the water dispute, which pits farmers in Mexico against farmers in South Texas. A group of progressive activists that includes Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts, Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, and Rashida Tlaib of Michigan ran for Congress as Democratic candidates in 2018 and won stunning victories. This band of organizers-turned-legislators, known as the Squad, have helped re-energize left-wing electoral politics. Now they're getting reinforcements. Progressives and Democratic Socialists scored major victories in 2020 primary election battles. Four challengers from the left who defeated more conservative Democratic Party incumbents are now likely to join the squad in the House. They are Jamal Bowman and Mondaire Jones of New York, Marie Newman of Illinois, and Cory Bush of Missouri. As in these times reports, the small but growing left flank in the House has had a disproportionate impact on American politics. They've succeeded in gaining support for the Green New Deal that just two years ago had little or no backing from Democratic Party leaders. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer wouldn't have endorsed the Thrive Agenda, a proposed stimulus package focusing investments in communities of color, curbing climate change, and creating union jobs if it wasn't for fear of primary challenges from the left. 
In a split 4-4 decision, the U.S. Supreme Court let stand a Pennsylvania rule that allows for the counting of absentee ballots up to three days after Election Day. With its new untested mail-in voting system, Pennsylvania could be one of the last swing states to announce the winner of its 20 electoral votes in the 2020 presidential contest. Thus far, over 1.2 million Pennsylvania voters have returned mail-in ballots. 64% of those ballots were sent in by Democrats versus 25% from Republicans. But state rules prevent county clerks from tabulating absentee ballots until Election Day. Because it will take days to get a preliminary vote count on mail-in ballots, it is feared that Republicans could use that time to sow doubt about the legitimacy of the eventual winner in Pennsylvania. This could also provide a pretext for Republican lawmakers to defy the popular vote winner and name pro-Trump electors to the Electoral College. Attempts by county governments to begin counting mail-in ballots before Election Day was halted by the Republican-majority state legislature. Waiting until Election Day could create a backlog of 3 million absentee ballots. Meanwhile, the Trump campaign has been videotaping Philadelphia voters while they deposit their ballots in drop boxes, leading Pennsylvania's Attorney General to warn that the campaign's actions could amount to illegal voter intimidation. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. As Election Day draws near, Donald Trump's re-election campaign is doubling down on inviting the president's supporters to engage in voter intimidation tactics. In recent months, the campaign has posted advertisements calling on supporters to enlist today to join Trump's army for election security operations. In addition to retired Navy SEALs, Special Operations Forces veterans, Sheriffs and off-duty police officers, armed right-wing extremist groups, including QAnon, Proud Boys, Boogaloos, and so-called militia groups, have all called for a physical presence at polling places. Philadelphia, a stronghold of Democratic support in the key battleground state of Pennsylvania, was specifically targeted by Trump's army when the president told his supporters that bad things happen in Philadelphia when counting the votes. Trump's frequent refusal to condemn violent white supremacist groups, his praise of vigilantes who've been charged with committing murder, and his refusal to agree to a peaceful transfer of power should he lose the election, all contribute to an election environment of fear and intimidation. Your reporter spoke with Ben Clements, board chair of the group Free Speech for People. Here he discusses the lawsuit his group has filed on behalf of Me Familia Vota Education Fund and individual plaintiffs against the Trump administration for voter intimidation in violation of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the Ku Klux Klan Act, and the U.S. Constitution. So the lawsuit is on behalf of our organizational client, Me Familia Vota, 
which uh, is a voter rights education fund that engages in uh, promoting voter registration and supporting voters in elections, along with two individual voters, one from uh, Pennsylvania and one from Texas, who have been intimidated in their own desire to vote in this election. And the defendants are Donald Trump, the Attorney General Bill Barr, and the Acting Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf. And the basis for the lawsuit is that these defendants together and working together and with others in the administration have engaged in a months-long effort to intimidate voters, to suppress voters through violence, through threats of violence, through sabotaging the mails so that uh, vote by mail becomes more difficult through discrediting voting by mail through a campaign of disinformation and illegitimizing that uh, and, and through threats of sending vigilantes and government officials to the polls to intimidate voters, particularly voters perceived by these defendants to be opposed to Donald Trump. And the legal basis for the lawsuit is two federal statutes and the United States Constitution. The threat to voter rights violates First Amendment rights under the Constitution, 14th Amendment rights, uh, and Fifth Amendment rights. But it also violates two particular statutes, and one is the Voter Rights Act, which prohibits uh, anybody, not just government officials, but any person from uh, engaging in intimidation or threats or coercion to impinge on other people's rights to vote, as well as the Ku Klux Klan Act, which prohibits individuals from conspiring together to interfere with other persons' rights to vote and to have a say in the election. So that's a big picture basis for the lawsuit. So the, the goal of this lawsuit uh, is to get a federal court to issue an injunction declaring that the conduct that these defendants have been engaged in does violate the Voting Rights Act and the Ku Klux Klan Act and the Constitution uh, and to order the defendants to stop. And we have a, a series of specific directives that we have asked the court to order the defendants to stop doing. Specifically, we request that the judge stop to deploy armed federal agents near polling places, uh, to not use federal agents or employees to block delivery of ballots or to interfere in the counting of ballots, to block and interfere with speedy mail, uh, which has obviously been a problem in recent months uh, as a result of some of the actions uh, of Trump and his administration. And specifically with respect to Donald Trump, we're asking the court to direct him to stop encouraging his supporters to interfere with voters, to not bring weapons to polling places, to stop encouraging them to block access to polling places, uh, or to otherwise intimidate voters. We've had instances recently where armed groups have shown up at polling places during early voting. We've had... Uh, drop boxes for mail-in ballots in Boston burned. And in Texas, Governor Abbott has ordered a 1,000 National Guard troops to be deployed in advance of Election Day. What is possible in terms of your lawsuit to prevent this kind of activity proactively as opposed to just responding to things that are likely to happen across the country in, in the days ahead? Well, that is certainly the goal, is to try to stop some of this proactively. 
uh, a lot of, of the damage uh, has been done already. There's no question that when we see people lighting drop boxes on fire, when we see people sending uh, mercenaries to polls with guns to intimidate people, when we see people gathering in large groups in a menacing way next to a line of people waiting to vote, um, that these actions have been inspired, they've been encouraged, and they've been condoned by Donald Trump. So one of the ways that we're trying to address that is to get the court to order Donald Trump to stop uh, encouraging and condoning this kind of activity. And we do very much have the concern that uh, I believe there was a report from CNN about Homeland Security uh, officials preparing to send law enforcement, uh, federal law enforcement, to the polls. And we have a very clear law that the federal government, Donald Trump, Bill Barr, Chad Wolf, they may not send armed federal officials to polling places. There's a law that prohibits it with one very, very narrow exception, which is in the case of responding to armed enemies of the United States at a polling place. And that's it. This idea that they can send armed officials to monitor polls is unlawful and very threatening and very damaging to our democracy. That was Ben Clements, board chair of the group Free Speech for People. Learn more about their lawsuit filed against the Trump regime for voter intimidation by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. As citizens around the country have either already voted or are preparing to vote on Election Day, November 3rd, the issue of felony disenfranchisement is once again front and center. A recent study, published by the Sentencing Project, found a very modest decline in the number of people with a felony conviction in their past prohibited from voting, from more than 6 million in 2016 to 5.2 million in 2020. States vary greatly on how they handle the issue. From two states, Vermont and Maine, which allow incarcerated people to vote, to 11 states that indefinitely disenfranchise felons, potentially for life. Today, 37 states allow something in between, such as restricting voting rights for individuals who remain under parole or probation supervision. The study found that even though there have been legislative reforms in states to increase voting rights, those changes haven't affected as many people as hoped. In two states, citizens with felony convictions were deemed eligible to vote by executive order of their governors, but the study didn't include those changes because a governor's executive order can easily be reversed by their successors. Between the lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Christopher Yugun. Regents Professor and Distinguished McKnight Professor of Sociology and Law at the University of Minnesota. Professor Yugun, lead author of the new study titled Locked Out 2020, explains why the number of former felons eligible to vote has remained low and the barriers they still face. It turns out that the changes uh, often didn't affect uh, quite so many people in each of the individual states, and in particular, Florida. There were high hopes in, in 2018 when Florida uh, passed the ballot referendum to uh, expand voting to people post-sentence. 
as it turns out, though, that was undercut quite a bit by the requirement that before retaining, restoring the right to vote, that they had to be paid off on all of their monetary sanctions, fines, fees, and restitution. And so for that reason, there's uh, approximately 900,000 people still post-sentence in Florida who will not have the right to vote in the coming election. I just want to clarify that that was a law passed by the state legislature. It wasn't part of the referendum, which was approved by 64% of the voters, right? Exactly, yeah. And so this alone, though, would have you know, reduced things quite a bit to you know, less than $4.5 million, certainly. Uh, the magnitude of changes, as is often the case, it is driven by a few states. And, you know, I, I think another kind of top-line result that is fairly consistent but perhaps uh, distressing is that there's still about 75 percent of the people who are disenfranchised are not incarcerated. So that is they're serving time on community supervision or they've completed their community supervision obligations and they remain disenfranchised post-sentence. But I say that this is an extremely unusual situation by international standards and by historical standards. It certainly when many of these laws were passed in the 19th century, these institutions of community supervision didn't really exist. And so this is one of the reasons that the United States disenfranchises such a large share of our population relative to other nations in which really the fulcrum of debate is whether prisoners should be permitted to vote as is the practice in many uh, uh, nations in, in the European Union and elsewhere. Chris Eugen, I know the referendum in Florida was initiated and led by formerly incarcerated people, but I wonder how much incarcerated or even formerly incarcerated folks want to vote or think it makes a difference versus other people who want them to vote. I would say there are both processes at work here. One thing that I, I think it's important to distinguish is the right to vote from the exercise of that right. And so, you know, I've used the example in the pandemic when certain things closed, like your gym or your library, et cetera, that uh, we feel that is a loss, even if we haven't visited those places uh, in, in recent weeks. And, and it's, it's similar with voting, although at a much more fundamental level. So, and that is when everyone is talking about the election or the debates are on in the public space, there is this sting and uh, of pain and regret when folks are not able to participate. And some have described it to me as like being salt in the wound that continues. So that there is a loss felt, certainly, in the absence of exercising the right. I'd also say that the, uh, one of the reasons for relatively low turnout uh, relates to the characteristics of people with felony convictions. And, and one that doesn't get discussed so much is mobility and the lack of stable housing that many people have. If we look at turnout in the general population, it's the case that once people uh, have a more permanent address, and young people in particular, they begin to vote more regularly. And so at reentry from incarceration in particular, that it's very difficult to obtain stable housing and to have that sort of permanent address and, you know, a utility bill with your name on it and, and the different sorts of uh, demonstrations of residence that, that we all have to come up with when we register to vote. So that's one of the one of the barriers and, you know, simply having identification forms, et cetera. And then, you know, many people who are under supervision are still relatively young and they will begin to vote at higher rates as they get older. 
And then a final thing that, that it really has a chilling effect that, again, is, is not recognized, uh, I, I don't think recognized enough, is that it's illegal to vote while one is on probation supervision or parole supervision or in states like Florida post-sentence. And that is a, a felony-level offense, and people can and do go to prison or jail uh, for violating it. And so if you have any doubt whatsoever about your status, about your right to vote, you will likely avoid uh, the ballot box. You will likely avoid voting for fear of, of catching a new felony. That was Christopher Ugun, professor of sociology at the University of Minnesota and lead author of a new report titled Locked Out 2020. Learn more about prison reform initiatives across the U.S. by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. While President Trump and Vice President Pence attend large campaign rallies across the U.S., with few precautions against the spread of the coronavirus, the deadly pandemic that has killed more than 225,000 Americans has reached a new record high of daily infections. Despite the health crisis, the Trump campaign, Republican state legislatures, some federal judges, and the Supreme Court have aggressively pushed to limit safe options for voters to cast their ballots and ruled to disqualify mail-in ballots in some states, even if postmarked before Election Day. After the president's relentless months-long dishonest campaign, claiming that mail-in ballots are fraudulent and his declaration that he cannot lose re-election unless it's rigged, there's growing concern that Trump and the GOP are laying the groundwork to steal the November 3rd election. Because many Democrats are casting their votes by mail, and large numbers of Republicans are planning to vote in person, it's possible that President Trump will appear to have won on election night, even if he ultimately loses, if and when all the votes are counted, the so-called Red Mirage scenario. Your reporter spoke with Jim Lafferty, former executive director of the Los Angeles office of the National Lawyers Guild, who assesses the threats to the November 3rd election and his belief that mass mobilization is the only sure way to defend the election. Bringing masses of people in the streets and staying there, not just for a one-afternoon-off demonstration, but staying there in the same spirit for some days after the election that, well, as they did it with the Arab Spring, they, they stood in the streets in some cases for months. Uh, they can do it, we can do it. To be out in the streets defending the electoral process itself protesting against any attempts by the courts or the, uh, or the Congress to steal the election. Uh, that, that presence in the streets uh, has a profound impact on what politicians think they can get away with and therefore what they try to get away with. We've proven that during the civil rights movement, during the anti-Vietnam uh, war movement and other movements, that when, uh, when, we, when we have the power of the people in the streets, it does have that kind of impact. And as especially, I think, important in this case, because um, if it should end up, for example, in the Congress, uh, if the election had to be decided there, and a number of, again, mainstream authors have talked about this, 
Um, this is not my interpretation. The Constitution is very clear. Uh, it's ultimately decided not in the Senate, not in the House. Well, you say, well, that's good news. The Democrats have a majority in the House. Oh, no, that's not how it's decided. Every state delegation, <laughs> every state delegation gets one vote. And there happen to be two more state delegations that are Republican than there are Democratic. So despite the fact that there may have had less votes for Trump in those, uh, I think it's at that 26 uh, Republican uh, uh, jurisdictions, doesn't matter. Since they all get one vote, uh, the minority will decide who the president is if it comes to that. Now, I think that's unlikely. But it's not so unlikely that the New York Times and, and, and all sorts of other Wall Street Journal even and uh, Washington Post have written about it and talked about it as a, as a real possibility. Yes, I think all of that can be influenced all the better and can be safeguarded against to the extent that we, the people, not only vote in massive numbers, but show up in the streets because we know the right wing is going to be there. Show up in the streets on election day and, and especially in the days after, because in many states it's going to take some days, if not a week or more, to count all the votes. And we've got to insist that those votes be counted and that courts not deny the right to those votes to be counted. Jim, uh, just a final quick question. We will get a minute or so left, but uh, are you satisfied that progressive groups around the country are making the uh, necessary preparations to organize folks to come out into the street and challenge uh, attempts to steal the election? Are messages going out to the people who need to hear the, the particulars about how to organize, where to gather, and how to have uh, contingency plans in place to, to meet a challenge such as this? Yes. The, answer, the, the short answer to your question is yes, but I, I would in all honesty say that not to the extent that we might have had we had we sort of woken up and thought about this a bit earlier, it's not easy, you know, to organize these things. But I think spontaneously, we, because of what we've seen, so many during the pandemic and the, so many of the uh, Black Lives Matter protests, for example, uh, were spontaneous. Yes, I, 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 on the one hand, I think that organizationally, had we to do all over again, we would have uh, uh, had more organized call for what I'm talking about two months ago and three months ago. But it's been hard for that to sink in and for us to come, because we live in, quote, unquote, America. We can't believe that our elections would have to be defended in the streets. But now, as that's become clear, uh, organizations are getting together. They are getting their folks together. I know we, the Lawyers Guild, our other organizations are. And so we're prepared to be out on the streets, uh, perhaps not as coordinated as we could have been had we started this sometime earlier. But just as we demonstrated during Black Lives Matter and many other protests after Trump's election, uh, we can come to the streets in vast numbers, peacefully coordinate with one another on the streets and let it be known that we're defending the election and, and what's left of democracy in America. So I, I urge everyone to, not only as I say vote, but please be willing in your neighborhood, in your area, when you hear about those demonstrations, pass that word on, don't be afraid, but be out there saying yes to democracy and no to stolen elections in America. That was Jim Lafferty, former executive director of the Los Angeles office of the National Lawyers Guild and host of the Lawyers Guild radio program on KPFK-FM. Find a link to Jim's recent article titled Massive Mobilization, The Only Sure Way to Defend the Election by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archived programs in MP3 and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WRFI in Ithaca, New York, WRFN in Nashville, Tennessee, KGUS in Bellingham, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.